everyone. I'm Charlotte. I'm Dina, and welcome to the Grim Curriculum. It's been a week, you guys. It has. It's been a. It's been a kind of a rough one. I'm not gonna lie. I don't know who out there can tell us what's going on in the stars that's messing everything up. But if uh, they could have a word with the planets and stop that, that'd be great. Talk to Mercury. Where is Mercury? What's yeah. it doing? I don't know. Drinking its haterade. For I. Sure. I've talked to so many people this week that are just like off. Like, it just feels weird and not right and whatever. But uh, either way, if you're feeling that way, you are not alone. We got you. And uh, we have one hell of a case for you today. Yeah, we're covering the very still unsolved murder of Elizabeth Short. You might also know her as the Black Dahlia. And we know there are probably a few of you listening who are familiar with this case, uh, or at least know the main kind of details surrounding it. Most people know that Elizabeth Short was a young aspiring actress who met her end when she was brutally murdered. Her body was found in 1947, and her murder remains one of the most famous unsolved cases in American history. Her murder itself isn't exactly what makes the case so awful. It's more what was done to her body that makes the Black Dahlia so infamous. But we'll get to that a little bit later. And before we get into that, we'd like to talk a little bit about who Elizabeth Short actually was. Because at the end of the day, we do believe that she should be remembered for more than just being a murder victim. All right, so buckle up. Here we go. Elizabeth Short was born on July 29th, 1924, in the Hyde Park neighborhood in Boston, Massachusetts, to Cleo Short and Phoebe Short. The family, along with their other four daughters, moved to Maine, and then finally settled in Medford, Massachusetts, where she grew up. Her father, Cleo, was a pretty successful man. He built miniature golf courses and made an impressive living doing it. He provided well for his family, and they lived in a nice and spacious home. Unfortunately... He lost all of his money in the stock market crash of 1929, and in 1930, his car was found abandoned on the Charlestown Bridge. It was assumed that he couldn't handle the fact that he was no longer able to support his family and that he had taken his own life by jumping off the bridge. The reality of it was that Cleo hadn't actually killed himself. He faked his death in order to escape bankruptcy, and his family wouldn't hear from him until Elizabeth was older. Phoebe Short was unable to afford the $35 a month rent, and the family was forced to move into a smaller house. Two months later, the landlord raised their rent again, and the family ended up settling into a much smaller downstairs suite of a two-family home. And Phoebe did her best to provide for her daughters. She would work as a bookkeeper, as well as collect welfare and other social assistance. Despite all of this, the family remained in a good neighborhood, and all things considered, Elizabeth's childhood was pretty decent. Phoebe Short was the reason that Elizabeth became interested in films and Hollywood in the first place. Phoebe would take Elizabeth and her sister Muriel to the movies with her twice a week. The other two daughters, Eleonora and Virginia, weren't interested in movies and would stay home, but for Elizabeth this was a huge event. They would get all dressed up and window shop their way there, and they would take their time to admire the beautiful clothes they saw in the boutiques. Elizabeth's sister Muriel would talk later about how Elizabeth would often talk about Abel being able to one day afford all of the beautiful things she saw. She also loved to recreate her favorite scenes. And this led to Elizabeth to begin dreaming about being a rich and famous actress. Hollywood was in its golden age and she wanted to be a part of it. Unfortunately, Elizabeth had some health issues. She suffered from severe bronchitis and would have horrible asthma attacks. At the age of 15, she underwent lung surgery. There's something about the idea of 1940s lung surgery that scares the absolute crap out of me and uh, that really can't have been an easy thing for her to recover from. 
It was around this point that the doctor told her that she should probably try to spend some time in milder climates, and she would spend the next three winters living in Miami, Florida with some family friends. Soon after, Elizabeth dropped out of high school. It was around this time that her mother received a letter from Cleo Short. He explained in the letter that he was actually still alive and he was living in California. In the letter, he asked Phoebe to take him back. Phoebe, obviously still upset about the fact that he had completely abandoned her with their five children, told him to never contact her again. And to his credit, he didn't. Good. At the age of 18, Elizabeth relocated to Vallejo, California to live with her father, who was working at a naval shipyard. She hadn't seen him since he had faked his death, but he offered to provide her with a place to live free of charge if she was willing to do all the housekeeping. However, things didn't work out between the two due to Elizabeth not keeping up her end of the deal. She'd reportedly sleep all day and go out all night, which led to tension between her and her father. She would move out in January of 1943. Elizabeth found a job at Camp Cook, now known as the Vanderburg Air Force Base near Lompoc, California, where she met an Air Force sergeant who reportedly would abuse her. She left soon after, and by the middle of 1943, she moved to Santa Barbara. It was there that she was arrested for underage drinking at a bar. The police sent her back home to Massachusetts, but she would return to Florida, only returning home on rare occasions to visit her family. It was in Florida that Elizabeth met Major Michael Gordon, an Army Air Force officer who was training for deployment to the China-Burma-India Theater of Operations. Elizabeth told her friends that Major Gordon had proposed to her while he was recovering from injuries that he had sustained in a plane crash in India. She happily told him yes, but found out soon after that Major Gordon had passed away in a second plane crash on August 10th, 1945. Understandably heartbroken, Elizabeth went to Los Angeles to visit Army Air Force Lieutenant Joseph Gordon Fickling, an acquaintance of hers that she had met in Florida. When he moved to another state, she was left with nowhere to stay and began staying in hotels or with friends. Despite everything going on in her life, Elizabeth still wrote to her mother once a week. She talked about how she worked as a waitress and spent time auditioning for movie roles where she would sometimes land a role as an extra, although there are no known acting credits for her. Either way, Elizabeth appeared to love the potential that Hollywood had for her. She enjoyed the nightlife and appeared to be a very social person. It's around this time that Elizabeth would stay with the French family. Their daughter Dorothy French worked as a cashier at the Aztec Theatre, which, fun fact, is still around to this day and will be 96 years old this year. One evening, Dorothy found Elizabeth sleeping in the theater, which at the time was open 24 hours. She offered her a place to sleep for one night, but it turned into Elizabeth staying with the family for about a month. After her death, members of the French family were interviewed. They described Elizabeth as a polite but secretive girl who appeared to be constantly in fear of something. They also noted that while she was with them, she mentioned that she needed a great deal of money for something, but she wouldn't specify what it was. Elizabeth would overstay her welcome with the French family because they didn't approve of her sleeping in late and going out at night. They complained that she would leave her lacy black underwear laying around the house, but honestly, it's hard to say if that was true or if that just had to do with the way that the media would end up portraying her. Something suspicious to note is that shortly before her death, Elizabeth dyed her hair with henna to give it a red hue. If what the French family had said was true about her being in fear of something, did she possibly dye her hair in an effort to disguise herself? We can't find any confirmation on this, but it is interesting to think about. 
It's likely that Elizabeth was renting a room behind the Florentine Gardens nightclub on Hollywood Boulevard, which, interestingly enough, had been the venue that Marilyn Monroe had met one of her husbands, and she would marry him there in 1942. The apartment building that she lived in was known to have a small lesbian population, which would later cause a media frenzy. It was rumored that Elizabeth engaged in some sexual relationships with women, which we will discuss more when we talk about potential suspects. On January 9th, 1947, Elizabeth returned home from a trip she had taken to San Diego with a man named Robert Red Manley, a 25-year-old married man that she had been dating. Robert Manley would later state that he dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel in downtown LA to meet with her sister who she was visiting. Some staff members at the hotel would report seeing her using a phone in the lobby, and people at a nearby cocktail lounge would also say that they briefly saw her. Unfortunately, we really don't know much about her final days. Who did she seem so scared of when she was staying with the French family? Who was she calling at the hotel lobby? We're just not sure. And all we know is that likely this was the last time that anyone other than her killer would see her alive. Now it's time to get to the discovery of the body. And this is where the case gets particularly gruesome. Like we said from the beginning, this case stands out not just because of the murder, but because of what came afterwards. On the morning of January 15th, 1947, Betty Bersinger was out for a walk with her baby when something caught her eye. Laying in the grass was what appeared to be a broken mannequin. She didn't get too close because she was with her daughter, but she knew something about what she had seen wasn't right. In an interview she gave, Betty talks about how she knew children would be passing through the area and that she didn't want the mannequin to scare anyone, so she reported it. The idea of it being a dead body hadn't crossed her mind at all, but the further she got away from the scene, the more she thought about how maybe there was a chance that it wasn't a mannequin. She went to a nearby house and told a woman about what she had seen. The woman allowed her to use her phone, and police were called to investigate. Now, it's probably for the best that Betty didn't take a closer look at what she saw that day, because it was probably far worse than anything she could have ever imagined. And we get it. Curiosity may get the best of you. You might want to look up the photos if you haven't already seen them before listening to this. They're not hard to find at all. But honestly, maybe don't do that. Some things really can't be unseen. They're pretty bad. And we also want to report something interesting about the early media coverage of this case. The very first reporter at the scene was a woman named Agnes Underwood, who worked for the Los Angeles Herald Express. Agnes had previously covered some pretty impressive stories, including an interview with pilot Amelia Earhart a few years before her disappearance. Despite her being an incredibly capable reporter, she was taken off the case twice with absolutely no reason given to her. This could have possibly had to do with the corruption in LA at the time, but it's hard to say. Okay, so let's get into my favorite part, the autopsy. The autopsy was performed by Frederick Newbar, the Los Angeles County Coroner, the day after the discovery of the body. The following is an excerpt taken from his report. There are multiple lacerations to the mid-forehead, in the right forehead, and at the top of the head in the midline. There are multiple tiny abrasions and lacerations. The trunk is completely severed by an incision, which is almost straight through the abdomen. There are multiple crisscross lacerations in the suprapubic area, which extend through the skin and soft tissues. There are lacerations of the intestines and both kidneys. The uterus is small and no pregnancy is apparent. The tubes, ovaries, and cul-de-sac are intact. Within the vagina and higher up, there is a lying loose piece of skin with fat and subcutaneous tissue attached. On this piece of loose skin, there are several crisscrossing lacerations. Smears for spermatozoa have been taken. So what does this mean? 
Basically, there were marks on her ankles, wrists, and neck that had indicated that she had been tied up, possibly for several days. Her right breast had been cut, and there were superficial cuts on her right forearm, left upper arm, and the left lower side of her chest. Most shockingly, though, Elizabeth Short's body had been discovered completely cut in half at the waist. The body had been cut in half using a surgical technique taught in the 1930s called a hemicorporectomy. There was very little bruising around this area, which suggested that it had been done after she had died. There were also serious lacerations on either side of her mouth, extending from the corners of her lips, forming a grotesque smile from the wounds. Some of her pubic hair appeared to have been removed by hand. There were also evidence that she had been sexually assaulted. The cause of death was determined to be hemorrhaging from the lacerations to her face and from other trauma that was done to her head and her face. Due to a lack of blood at the crime scene, it was determined that her death had occurred at a different location where she was mutilated, drained of blood, cleaned, and then moved to where she would be found posed with her arms stretched out above her head and her legs spread apart. At this point, the LAPD knew that they had an extremely sick individual on their hands. Not only was this a terrible murder, the way that the body was displayed indicated that the killer had set out to shock people. The investigation into the death of Elizabeth Short was the largest since 1927, when a child named Marion Parker was kidnapped and killed. Hundreds of officers from surrounding areas were brought in to help with the investigation. The FBI was also called to help. Less than an hour into investigating, they were able to identify the victim as Elizabeth Short. They were able to do this because her fingerprints showed up in their database, both from an army clerk job application and from her prior arrest for underage drinking. Because of the arrest, the FBI was also able to obtain her mugshot, which it shared with the press. Cleo Short was called to identify the body of his daughter, but he refused. He also wouldn't attend her funeral. Her mother found out about the murder of her daughter in the most horrible way. The public wanted to know as much as possible about this story, and reporters were desperate for any information about Elizabeth. The LA Examiner, <laughs> Examiner, 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 that's my British coming through. The LA Examiner called her mother in Boston to tell her that they were calling because her daughter had won a beauty contest and that they wanted more information about her for an article they were writing. They pressed her for as much info as possible about her daughter, and then finally told her, oh, by the way, your daughter is actually dead. She was murdered. They offered to pay for her accommodations to L.A. so that she could help with the investigation. She accepted this offer, but unfortunately, this was just another ploy for more information from her. And they would go to great lengths to keep her away from police and other, other news sources so that they could protect their own source. The media was absolutely horrible when it came to this case. Not that that's a surprise. The idea of a young, aspiring actress killed and mutilated both horrified and fascinated the public, and they just couldn't get enough. They gave Elizabeth Short the name the Black Dahlia because of her reported love of sheer black clothing and after the popular movie, The Blue Dahlia, starring Veronica Lee. The press continued to look for more information about her and attempted to contact her father, Cleo, for more information about his daughter. A writer reported, We went up there, and the first time we ever saw him, we knocked and knocked and knocked on the door and finally roused him, and we found him to be in a drunken stupor, found wine bottles all over the place. He was very uncooperative, especially in view of the fact that, after all, his daughter had been murdered. Apparently, they returned the following day, hoping to find Cleo in a more sober state of mind. Cleo told them that he had kicked her out of the house for not keeping the house clean or cooking for him. Cleo told them, I want nothing to do with this. He would live for another 20 years until his death in 1967, and as far as anyone knows, he never spoke about his daughter again. 
On January 21st, 1947, just a few days after the discovery of the body, a person claiming to be the killer of Elizabeth Short called the office of James Richardson, the editor of the Los Angeles Examiner. The unknown caller congratulated Richardson on his coverage of the case and told him that he would be turning himself in soon and to expect souvenirs from Elizabeth Short in the mail. This person was not the only one who would confess to the murder. In fact, around 60 people confessed. Most of them were men, but there were some women as well. About 24 of these were considered viable suspects by the LAPD and the FBI, which made lead some of you to ask how a murder investigation with 24 suspects could possibly go unsolved. Hey Charlotte? Yeah? If a murder investigation has 24 suspects, how could it possibly go unsolved? Funny that you should ask. There's a lot of different reasons for that, but one of them is that it's known that at the time the LAPD was dealing with a lot of issues regarding internal corruption. It's very possible that the files were lost or destroyed because the police force was so corrupt. It's also possible that certain people weren't looked at as viable suspects because they were wealthy and important, but we'll get to that a little bit later. 24 suspects sounds like a lot, but it really isn't considering the police originally questioned basically anyone who ever knew Elizabeth Short. Originally, hundreds of people were considered suspects and thousands were investigated regarding their knowledge of her. We also just want to point out that we're not going to go into every single Black Dahlia murder suspect because there were so many of them. And honestly, some of them weren't all that interesting and didn't stand out too much. Covering them all would take absolutely hours. So instead, we're going to just cover the main suspects that stood out to us. Investigators obviously had a lot of questions regarding this case, but there were some things that they were able to confirm. One of the things that the investigators knew was that the killer had some kind of skills with dissection. The body had been found very cleanly cut, and this led to a suspicion that the suspect could have had medical training. But to make it even more confusing, this kind of evidence on the body could also be done by someone like a butcher. So they were looking for anyone between a surgeon to a butcher for their suspect. Students at the University of Southern California Medical School were also questioned. There appeared to be a break in the case when on January 24th, a manila envelope was discovered addressed to the Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles newspapers. The envelope contained a crude letter made from letters from newspaper clippings that said, here is Dahlia's belongings. Inside the envelope was an address book, Elizabeth Short's birth certificate, business cards, photographs, and various names written on pieces of paper. The contents of the envelope were also cleaned with gasoline, which is how Elizabeth's body had been cleaned. Shockingly enough, nothing came from this. One of the first suspects that were, was looked at with any seriousness was Robert Manley, the last person Elizabeth had seen, or rather was seen with, before her death. Like we said before, Robert Manley was a married man that Elizabeth had been seeing. Manley was the LAPD's top suspect in the first a few days of the investigation, but he passed two polygraph tests and was able to provide a solid alibi, and they eventually set him free due to lack of evidence. Robert died in 1986. Now this next one is pretty interesting. George Knowlton was a man who lived in the Los Angeles area and he knew Elizabeth Short. He died in 1962. Not a ton is known about him, but his daughter, Janice Knowlton, believed that her father was the killer until her death in 2004. Janice alleged that during a therapy session, she was able to recover memories about her father that involved her seeing him kill Elizabeth Short. She even claimed that he forced her to help him with the disposal of the body. She also made allegations that she was sold to a satanic sex cult as a child, among other things. 
Janice actually wrote a book called Daddy Was the Black Dahlia Killer in 1995, and she appeared on various talk shows, including Larry King Live. Unfortunately, her book was not very well received, and her family stated that her obsession with the case deeply strained their family. She was also known for calling the LA Times anytime they ran a Black Dahlia story and leaving them long voicemails that they described as rambling. She continued to believe that her father was the killer until her death. I can't imagine how horrible it would be to believe something like that so deeply and never find out the truth. Another suspect that the press covered pretty heavily was Joseph Dumay, a 29-year-old soldier who had been stationed in Fort Dix in New Jersey. To make things even more confusing, Dumay actually confessed to the murder. His confession was dismissed immediately by police because they had proof that he had been in New Jersey at the time, but the media just ran with it anyway. A newspaper in 1948 reported that he had claimed he had been married to Elizabeth, whose real name had been Eunice Fortune, and they had a daughter together. He told police it was possible that he had killed the Black Dahlia, and he would continue to claim it was him every time he was arrested. Another potential suspect was high-profile L.A. mobster Bugsy Siegel. As you may remember, Elizabeth appeared to members of the French family as being afraid that someone was out to get her, and she talked about how she owed someone money. Who more scarier to owe money to than the mob in 1947 Hollywood? In his book, published in 2005, Don Wolfe claims that Bugsy Siegel killed Elizabeth Short because of her involvement with Norman Chandler, who was the well-known and influential publisher for the LA Times. Wolf claims that Siegel killed her because of an unwanted pregnancy. However, Bugsy Siegel was very well-known to LAPD at the time, and he was being watched heavily, and they had no reason to believe it was him. Also, the autopsy did state that there was no evidence of a pregnancy. Not all of the suspects were men. There was a theory that Elizabeth could possibly have been living with another woman at the time of her death, and that a woman could have killed her. Another uh, more outlandish theory is that Elizabeth was cut in half because it made her easier to transport and that a woman would have had trouble moving an intact body by herself. I think we can all probably agree, while this isn't completely impossible, it's just not very likely. The press didn't exactly help when it came to all of the rumors that were flying around. Some believed that she was murdered in an angry rage by a female lover, and some were convinced that she was part of a sex ring. Wildly enough, there were actually some celebrity suspects too, the most notable being Orson Welles. Orson Welles was actually in the immediate area after the murder. He was filming Lady from Shanghai. The movie is about a sailor who becomes involved in a murder plot when he is hired to work on a yacht. He is implicated in the murder despite being innocent. The movie contains a very famous shootout scene in a hall of mirrors. That scene contains an image of a bisected mannequin posed similarly to Elizabeth Short. It is said that filming had to be stopped a few days after the murder happened because Wells had suffered some kind of a breakdown. We do know that Orson Wells suffered with his mental health for a very large part of his life, and this wasn't the first time that it happened, and it wouldn't be the last, but it certainly is interesting to say the least. He also had a bit of a reputation on set that definitely gives food for thought. Once on stage, he refused to use a prop knife, insisting on using a real one. The other actor was injured and barely survived. He also had a weird obsession with magic. He had a stage act, and the finale of it was him cutting a woman in half. He performed this trick on various occasions. Eventually, the head of Columbia Studios put a stop to this when he wanted to use his then-girlfriend, Rita Hayworth, as his assistant. There's absolutely no doubt that Orson Welles was a pretty weird guy, but was he the killer? 
there's definitely some things that stand out when it comes to him, but we also have to add that he had a lot of money, and if he did get in trouble, he would have been able to afford top-tier lawyers, or possibly just even pay off the right people to stay quiet. Now we can't talk about Black Dahlia suspects without talking about George Hodel. Interestingly enough, George Hodel wasn't known as a potential suspect until many years later, when his own son, Steve, would unearth some alarming evidence against his father. Steve Hodel is a retired LAPD homicide detective, which makes this even more interesting. Steve was given some of his father's possessions after his death in 1999. He found some concerning things regarding Elizabeth Short and other women, and he decided to reach out to his half-sister, who he didn't really know very well, to see if she knew anything. She told him that George had actually been considered a suspect in the very beginning, and that him, along with other members of the family, had been questioned. Steve became determined to clear his father's name and began to investigate the case. What he found will really make you think. Steve moved back to L.A. to begin his own investigation. Within about a year and a half, he had built his own case. He submitted his evidence to the DA, who he claims said that they would have looked into it further if his father were still alive. Turns out, this wasn't the first time police looked the other way when it came to George Hodel. George was an incredibly important man. He was a well-respected surgeon. During this time, abortions were illegal and they were performed in secret. This was incredibly dangerous for women and many would die during this process. George Hodel was known to perform these illegal abortions, sometimes on the girlfriends of police officers and other important people. Steve believes that because of this, George was considered untouchable despite being considered a suspect. He was actually able to get out of a really serious incest charge as well at another point around this time. Steve also claims that he was able to find the original DA files, which state that George was considered a suspect all along and that he was being watched by police. They actually tape recorded him for 42 days. What's really interesting is that they weren't able to bug the house out of fear that he would find out, so they waited until he left and put microphones into his walls that were hard-lined to the station four miles away. That's 6.4 kilometers. Interestingly enough, this would be the station that Steve would later work at as a detective. George was recorded saying a lot of really suspicious things during this time. The microphones caught him saying, Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary because she's dead. Steve Hodel believes that his father also killed their secretary. He is recorded by saying, Put a pillow over her head and covered her with a blanket. Get a taxi. Call George Street Receiving Hospital right away. Expired, 1239. They thought there was something fishy. Anyways, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. And George knew that he was being watched. He had no idea about the microphones in his walls, but he did believe that his phones were being tapped. He was again recorded by saying, Don't say anything on the phone. It's tapped. I have your phone number. I will have to go out to call. And on one occasion, he was recorded saying a few words that are pretty concerning. I'm in trouble. Black Dahlia. Passport. Police have pictures of me, and I thought I destroyed them all. His wife had been interviewed a few days prior, and he was aware that the police had photos of him and his family. Unfortunately, before any further investigation or arrests could be made, George Hodel vanished and the police locked the file away. Soon after, a new police chief was in charge and LAPD were under fire for possible corruption. Steve claims that the police didn't want to proceed with the case because it would expose the corruption in the police force even more, and that they were probably happy that he was gone and they could pretend he was never looked at. 
After all, George Hodel knew too much about very powerful people. Steve Hodel also claims that the LAPD destroyed the majority of the files after this, and he was able to use the remaining files for his own investigation. Steve would have been around seven when all of this happened. He now believes that his father killed Elizabeth Short in their family home while the rest of the family was away and that he had been having an affair with her. Not only does he believe that his father killed the Black Dahlia, he believes that his father was a serial killer and was responsible for the murders of numerous women, including actress Jean Spangler, who disappeared in 1949, and the secretary he was recorded speaking about. He has written not one, not two, but six books where he lays out a lot of pretty damning evidence against his father. Not only that, Steve has appeared on numerous talk shows, including Dr. Phil, with other members of his family to talk about what they believe George Hodel did. There is actually also a podcast that is done by other members of his family called Root of Evil, the true story of the Hodel family and the Black Dahlia. Now, I don't know about you folks listening, but the more I learned about George Hodel, the more he stood out to me. You may remember us saying earlier that it was suspected that the killer could be anything from a surgeon to a butcher due to their skill with a knife. George was not only a surgeon, but he was performing incredibly risky procedures on women at the time, and it really isn't that out to lunch to say that some of them may have died. Could Elizabeth have been one of them? And just in case you heard all of that and thought we had an answer, we are going to look at what some of the folks who don't agree with Steve Hodel have to say about his claims. Steve Hodel has come under fire numerous times for his claims against his father. The fact that he has written six books regarding the murder and has built what you could call a pretty impressive career around it does have some people wondering if he's really doing it because he believes it was George Hodel. People also disagree with the fact that he's one of the top contributors to the George Hodel Wikipedia page, which is actually against Wikipedia's policies because it's considered a conflict of interest to edit pages regarding your family members. People have also claimed that photos of the Black Dahlia that Steve claimed to have found were actually of another woman, and it's incredibly hard to confirm whether or not Elizabeth Short and George Hodel actually even knew each other. People have also said that George Hodel was a smart man, and he knew that cops were listening to him. And they say that the suspicious things that he was saying about her were done to bait the cops so that they would admit to listening to him, and that the other quotes were taken out of context. Not only that, the claim that George Hodel was looked at because he was a surgeon who was committing abortions was true, but LAPD investigated a lot of people with medical backgrounds and also people who had been accused of sex crimes, which, as we mentioned before, George Hodel was. We can also look at the scary fact that maybe the person who killed her was never even considered a suspect to begin with. Someone could have killed her and left the state, or even the country, never to be seen or heard from again. Unfortunately, the possibilities are endless. Elizabeth Short was murdered in 1947, and here we are still talking about the case. While researching, we noticed the absolutely insane amount of books, articles, and news stories written about her, and despite the fact that the murder happened so long ago, people still continue to stay fascinated with this case. I mean, look at us. I think we can both agree that the more you look into this, the more of a rabbit hole you go down. Unfortunately, we're not sure if this is going to be a case of new evidence coming to light over time or new information, just because it seems like all of the answers needed to solve the case may have already been kind of out there to begin with. However, with information possibly being destroyed or covered up, and more people who were involved in the case and investigation have passed away as time goes on, we might never know. The most we can do with this case is really look at all of the evidence that we have available to us and kind of come to our own conclusion. What do you think, Dina? 
a really big part of me believed that it was George Hodel, honestly, up until the day before we recorded this. Last minute research led me to finding the information put out there by Steve Hodel, and I went from feeling like, oh, we know who this was, he just died, and that's that, to I don't think we are ever going to find out who did this, which is honestly both frustrating and really depressing. Elizabeth Short went down in history for being a murder victim, and I can't think of anything more sad. She was so much more than that, and the fact that we will never see anyone brought to justice kind of breaks my heart for her. She deserved more than this, that's for sure. There's a part of me that really likes the sensational idea of the killer being Orson Welles, but in more of a, if I were writing the screenplay for the movie kind of way, I still think my top suspect is George Hodel, but the counter evidence that you found, Dina, really gives me a lot more food for thought. I think this is just a crazy piece of history where we, I, th I think if you, if someone told you this story, you would think it was too crazy. From Elizabeth's dad, Cleo, faking his death before any of this even happened, to the glitz and glam of Golden Age Hollywood, the mobsters, the affairs with married men, the story of Elizabeth's life and death are certainly a story that deserves to be told. And we want to know what all of you think. Do you think there was enough evidence to link anyone to her murder? Do you believe Steve Hodel that it was his father, George? What about Janice Knowlton? Could it have been someone incredibly influential who was able to get away with it because of their status and power? Or was it someone who went under the radar because of that and we never knew who it was? Was it a man? Was it a woman? Was it a stranger or someone she knew? This case leaves us in kind of a weird place where we don't really have an ending. We're all just kind of waiting here hoping that one day we're going to know the truth. I really, I really hope we do. I do too. Alright, so that was the unsolved murder of Elizabeth Short, also known as the Black Dahlia. We hope you enjoyed this case. This week was a little different, since we mainly covered a victim, but next week we can promise you that we have something lined up that is absolutely going to shock you. Trust me on this. It's one that I actually hadn't heard before Dina suggested it to me, and now that the research has started, I can't believe it, because it's bonkers. Yes. Like, there are parts of this story that are going to have your jaw hitting the ground. You're going to love it. Make sure you don't miss out on the Grim Curriculum news by following us on Instagram at The Grim Curriculum and Grim Curriculum on Twitter. You can also find us on social media. I'm ominous underscore walrus on Twitter and ominous walrus on Instagram. And I am Dina V on Twitch, Dina V IG on Instagram, and Dina V tweets on Twitter. Thank you so much, you guys, for all the love over the last five episodes. Here's to the next five. 50. 500. We are in this for the long haul, friends. See you next week. Thanks for listening. This, this has been, been The Grim, Grim Curriculum. Curriculum.